From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. If there's one relatively modern Jesuit whose name I've heard over and over, but whose work I hardly know anything about, it's the French paleontologist and theologian Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. Even though he died in 1955, I feel like his work is still being discussed and debated in theological circles all the time. There are numerous associations and publications dedicated solely to exploring Teilhard's huge body of work. He made it back into the news this past fall when Pope Francis described Teilhard as often misunderstood during a mass in Mongolia. So I reached out to one of the foremost Teilhard experts in the United States, Sister Kathy Duffy, SSJ. Sister Kathy is a sister of St. Joseph of Philadelphia and the president of the American Teilhard Association. She's also Professor Emerita of Physics at Chestnut Hill College in Philly, where she directs the Institute for Religion and Science. She has written two books on Teilhard, including most recently, Teilhard's Struggle, Embracing the Work of Evolution from Orbis Press. Sister Kathy also guides retreats on topics related to Teilhard's life and work. So I asked Sister Kathy to introduce me to Teilhard's life and his thought. I want to know why he continues to be so interesting to so many people today, and why is he controversial? Kathy and I talked about the relationship between faith and science, some key biographical moments in Teilhard's life that shaped his theology, and what readers new to his work, like me, might want to start with. It was a real honor to talk with a Teilhard expert as accomplished as Kathy, and I think you'll enjoy her perspective on this massively influential Jesuit. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts, and thanks for joining us. Well, Sister Kathy Duffy, welcome to AMDG. Thank you so much for taking the time. How are you doing? I'm doing fine today, and so good to be with you and with our neighbor, the members who will be listening in on the Yes, we listeners all over the world, and I'm excited to have you introduce them and me to the life and work of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, SJ, who's a, an extremely important Jesuit theologian, paleontologist, did everything, right? So many different things. And he's a name I've heard throughout my life being interested in, you know, theology and Catholic stuff and Jesuit stuff. And I read a little bit here and there, I know a little bit about, but I realized especially this past fall when Pope Francis mentioned him while he was in Mongolia, close to where a hundred years before um, Teilhard himself had been, that I, I don't really know enough and I'm curious about him and he seems like he's in a lot of places. And so I reached out to you because I heard you were one of the, 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 the people to talk to about Teilhard and done a lot of work with his stuff over the years. And so I'm just I'd love to just get into it. And, and as we were saying before we started recording, you could do a whole series of podcasts. There have been so many books and films and all kinds of things uh, about Tayar. But so we just need to do kind of an introduction. And if we can walk, if I can walk away from here wanting to get into him more and our listeners can want to pursue him more because their appetites are whetted, then I think we will have done our job here by Tayar. So maybe, Kathy, we could start if you could just introduce us to him. Uh, tell us a little bit about him, some of the biographical stuff that kind of then shaped his life and his thinking before we kind of get into some of the the big themes of his of his uh, theology and his uh, his vision. 
I'll be glad to do that. Um, yes, he is my good friend. <laughs> and he's been helping me along in life for many, many years. Um, but he, he has a very interesting life, actually. Um, he was born in 1881 in uh, so it, it, the central France, uh, near Clermont-Ferrand. And um, he, he was influenced very much by his mother, who had a great devotion to the Sacred Heart. And, but he was also very influenced by his father, who was a naturalist, and who would take him on walks, and, um, and he taught him how to collect fossils and to collect rocks. Now, the very interesting thing happened to him when he was about five years old. Uh, he was sitting beside a fire and um, fireplace, and his... Um, his a lock of his hair fell into the fireplace and began to burn. He got very upset. He, it was a traumatic experience for him that part of his body would not, you know, survive. That it would be able to, you know, um, be burned up. And he also had been worried about flowers and things that die. Hmm. But this was like the the um, the experience that really drove him into a new question. And this, uh, we're talking about a little boy at maybe four or five years old. We're not talking about an adult. But he, um, he decided that what he would do would be to collect uh, pieces of metal and he uh, iron. He would store them in the barn and then go there and worship the, the metal. Uh, but Eventually, you know, what happens is that um, iron rusts, so he realized that he hadn't gotten the right thing, so he turned his attention to stones. So he was a collector of, of rock for many years. In fact, when he was in, um, in, in the uh, Ecole, in, um, uh, in his like, high, kind of a high school um, at, at, uh, level of education, one of his teachers commented, that he was such a bright boy, but he was always distracted by something. And he found out later that it was the rocks. He was always thinking about his rocks. And so he had a question, what holds everything together? Now, that question pursued him into the Jesuits. He became a Jesuit um, soon after high school. Uh, and, um, but, but he began to have a little problem. You know, when he was out with his father, he just felt enamored by, you know, the beauty of earth and, of course, his rocks and this kind of thing. So he loved nature. But he also loved God now because he was influenced by his mother. And so when he got to the seminary, you know, he was reading Thomas Kempis, and you were supposed to flee from the world and just love God with your whole heart. He was upset. And so he, because he really wanted to do well, he was a perfectionist, so they say. And, uh, and so, but he talked with his, his um, novice master who tell, told him to not worry about it, just develop both sides of his, um, his love. And he did that. But as he was in the seminary, he, he was lucky to eventually get to Hastings to do just theology for a year. And the theme of that particular year was a passage from Paul that was 
all things hold together in Christ. And it, it struck him as this was the answer to his question. Now he knew that he was looking for something material and, and, and the answer was more spiritual. And he began to also at the same time read a lot about evolution. And what struck him was that, wow, if we could integrate this with Catholic doctrine, oh my goodness, our theology would be so exciting. It would just be um, much more dynamic than the static theology we was learning, which must have felt boring. Um, and so he was eventually he was um, um, he he made his final vows and he um, became a priest, um, a Jesuit priest, um, and went off to study paleontology and um, and uh, geology. He had one of the best teachers who realized that he had one of the best students and he gave him a project that he wouldn't have given to anybody who he didn't really trust. So that was that was that until the war broke out, the First World War, 1914. And of course, he was uh, conscripted into the into the uh, French army. Uh, he didn't want to um, fight in the war, be it that kind of soldier. He also uh, didn't really want to be a chaplain. So he opted to be a stretcher bearer, which is the lowliest rank in, in, in any army. And he did a great service there. He, he was a, a present at all the major um, battles in World War One uh, along the French border there the French and German border, and, um, you know, would go to the front lines, bring back the the, uh, the wounded and the dead soldiers during the night, the you know, or the day, whatever, the, the um, uh, shell, shells would be flying across the trenches where he was. The trenches were full of mud and that kind of thing. So it was, uh, it was um, you know, difficult for him. He learned a lot, though, about life because he was with not with the French soldiers, but he was with soldiers from the French Empire. So he had a cross-cultural experience at the same time. And he also got this feeling of how it would be if we would use the same energy to make changes in the world. So his whole idea of humanity grew uh, and what the potential was for humanity during that time. Now, as soon as the war was over, then he was able to go back to um, he was able to go back to studies. He finished his degree. Oh, I forgot to say this, which is important. During his time at the war, during the wartime, he would go off to churches with his little blue book. You know, those blue books that we used to use in, in college for exams. And he would write essays. He would begin to think about what he had decided to work on when he was a, 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 a seminarian in Hastings. And so he wrote essays and he would send them to his cousin who seemed to understand him. And he um, eventually, we have a whole book filled with that, those essays called Writings in Time of War. Now, this is the, the thing that turned the tide. 
Some some Jesuits in Belgium asked him to write an essay after they heard him talking about original sin and Adam and Eve and all those things in 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 the first chapter of Genesis. And uh, so he um, he wrote an essay. He sent them a copy. He um, he sent a couple copies to his friends and left one in his desk drawer. Now, he never really believed anything he wrote particularly. He was brainstorming. They were all brainstorming. So it wasn't as if he, he was saying this is exactly the way it is. But the tragedy is, I think, I think it's a tragedy, that the, uh, somehow that essay got to Rome, got to the Jesuit um, um, general, who got very upset. The provincial called him in. Eventually, he was asked to, to sign uh, six propositions, uh, many of them statements taken out of the former councils, Council of Trent and Nicaea, and things that he really didn't believe in. And uh, But he felt, eventually he felt he had to, you know, he had to agree to those because of his vow, you know, to... Um, to think with the church, but he never thought about giving up his freedom to think what he really thought. And um, but anyway, it was traumatic, and the the end result was that he was sent off to China, and he spent twenty years there. Interesting. By the time he got to China, he was very much engaged in his science. He wished he was were still in France because the um, he was doing a lot of work with changing ideas. Like his ideas were very fresh and exciting, and people were loving them. But probably also the the um, powers that be that were in those Jesuits who were in power at the time were concerned about what would happen if the if his um, writings got to Rome, and they saw what was happening, and they they were approving. So here he is in, in China. He, he made one extremely important uh, find, or he was part of it, an important find. They uh, found a hominid called Peking Man, a prehistoric hominid. And um, uh, the other thing he did in China was to write. He wrote as so many essays. We have 13 volumes of his essays, including the ones he did in the war. But now, you know, those, the human phenomenon was the one he really wanted to be published. And he really, and I think that caused him a lot of anxiety that it never was. He did talk to his new general, the new general, who was very kind to him, but there was no way he was going to get published. And uh, so eventually after he had to leave China because of the, you know, the, the turmoil there, then he went. Um, and went back to Paris, it was clear that he wasn't welcome in Paris. And so he was advised by his friend to, why don't you get a science job in the United States? So he ended up in New York City uh, for the last four years of his life. And, um, I, you know, and so he's buried there at the seminary, um, which is now owned by the Culinary Institute of America. That's right. Well, I appreciate that, Kathy. And I'm just thinking of so many different directions. But as you were describing some of the, the things that he experienced in his life, you know, having to sign certain things at the request of officials in Rome, getting in trouble, 
with the provincial or um, people not quite understanding some of his thinking. I'm curious, like, let's get into the ideas then, I guess. That's like, what about, as you were saying, there was something, it was fresh and new and people were responding to it in whatever way. They were saying, whatever he's doing is kind of pushing some boundaries. Um, and again, this is work, as we were saying before we recorded, he's been quoted by four popes, um, including most recently by Francis, but also popes before. Uh, so there's clearly a fascination and he has a hold on people's imaginations. And I'm so curious, we can't get into all of it, as you're saying, just volumes and volumes. Um, but what are some of the themes from his thinking that you think were most exciting things that he really kind of led the way, things that captured your own imagination as you got to know him um, in, in the past? So one of the reasons I became friendly with uh, Teilhard is because um, when I was a child, I was taught I couldn't believe in evolution. And so it was, um, it was both consoling and confusing to find out that I could. And, but I didn't have enough background to figure out what all that meant. I needed Teilhard's work. And of course, that was actually not, I guess, just published in French, maybe in English by then, almost maybe the year before it was published in English. And, and I wasn't able to read all of that, of course, at my age. I was just a teenager. Uh, but a few people, the teacher who, who told me, and then also another teacher who, a lecturer, mentioned Teilhard. And that set me on the path to try to find him. And so I, uh, you know, I read The Divine Milieu uh, eventually and uh, was always very, very interested in that. Um, I guess the next really important piece of that is, you know, I um, eventually went into science. So I'm very focused on science, uh, and I need better answers. Do you know, I need to know how these two things are connected. I want things to be reasonable. And I think that's the gift that Taylor gave me, is that it is reasonable. It's deep. The mystery is deep, but it's reasonable. And so, um, you know, as a child, I was told, don't worry about the Trinity, just believe in it. Taylor would say, no, 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 <laughs> plumb the mystery, plumb the mystery, find out what you can from the mystery. And so um, it was those kinds of things. And it, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't uh, early that I did really serious work because I was always busy, either, you know, uh, in graduate school, then teaching. Um, and I never had time really to dedicate until about the year 2000. And that's when I really, you know, read most of, most of the important works and, um, uh, and began to write. And so that's been a really good experience because there's nothing like writing to get you to know what you're talking about. <laughs> mm. Maybe just as a way of kind of getting into some of uh, some specifics uh, of, of Teilhard, some more specifics, um, can we turn to this uh, more recent uh, mention of his by Pope Francis, who was in Mongolia and said, talked about um, that Teilhard had not been far away when he had um, started to write uh, part of his mass on the world that he was, I think, involved in a science expedition and, and didn't have the bread and wine, couldn't celebrate mass. And so mm -hmm. that kind of um, experience kind of started leading him toward 
toward crafting this, which again, the Pope quoted from. Um, so what, what was the, what is the mass on the world and how does it kind of bring us into some of um, Teilhard's uh, theology and, and his vision? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's an, a wonderful, I think it's his most beautiful essay. He had written ahead of, before that, while he was in the war, he had the same experience in the trenches, right? He had no bread and wine and mm. altar and all that. So he wrote an essay called The Priest, which was a prelude, but not anywhere as beautiful as The Mass on the World. So that you're right. He, um, he was, he, two things. He wrote The Mass in the Ordos Desert while he was with, traveling with another Jesuit, Père Lisson. And, um, but he also, in Mongolia, he, um, he worked with a group of, uh, Frenchmen who were driving very large vehicles through the desert. Uh, they were, they, um, were doing this for a, a French company that was wondering whether they could make it. In the end, he spent about a year and a half. He was hoping to do some research on the way, but uh, didn't do a lot. But in both cases, he was in the desert. And so uh, he you know, was celebrating this mass on the world. Um, it's a beautiful essay that takes the mass, the parts of the mass, and I think really deepens them. The consecration, his idea of the consecration is that the whole world is being transformed by Christ who dwells in its center, at its heart. And um, he, he celebrated in that key, you know, in, in, you know, in his whole, during his whole, the whole rest of his life. Um, I, I, I like to work out a ritual, you might say, of the Mass on the World, or even sometimes add pieces from the Mass into a regular Mass, uh, because I think it does give depth. The, um, he's the offertory, he's gathering all that we're doing to uh, forward evolution, as well as the pain that it takes. That's the bread and the wine for him, and that's what he feels Christ needs. Um, the consecration I just said, the transformation of those gifts so that Christ dwells in them as well as all the gifts that we have now. And then finally, the communion is very challenging in that we're committing ourselves to make a difference in the world. We, if we eat the bread, we are fortifying ourselves for the work. And if we drink the wine, we're committing ourselves to enduring the pain and the suffering. It's very, very challenging if, you know, if you really think about what, what we're saying. So um, I find it an extremely um, good um, essay and very beautifully written. And how in its themes might it also like connect us to some of the the major themes from the divine milieu or the phenomenon of man, the sense of humanity continuing to grow and change for things kind of coming together for like a unifying power to work for kind of Christ at the the center of mm-hmm. all of the the cosmos and all of creation. Um, yeah, help us kind of get, can you do any, tell us anything more about some of the the themes that, that come up in, in some of those other works and, and how they're how they're connected. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually, um, his very last essay, which he was dying to write before he died, um, was he remembered the ideas from the divine milieu and the mass on the world and wanted to put them out. It was called the Christic, and it's a very beautiful and uh, beautiful essay that integrates all of his work. But for me, the divine milieu is more about um, his ability to really grasp the inner the inner face of evolution, uh, which a phrase that he uses. He, um, you know, if he were um, if he were depressed, if he were suffering, if he were having trouble making a decision, he would. F- take himself to the divine milieu, this space where he really felt totally involved with Christ, uh, a space that often nature would help him to, to go to. Um, and so um, in some ways, you know, the mass is being celebrated, I guess, in the divine milieu. Um, as far as the human phenomenon goes, that's more like, you know, a universe story. At least it starts out that way. He's teaching us about evolution. And there are a couple of um, patterns that arise in, in the human phenomenon that I think are really important for all of us to understand and to know. One is called creative union. He noticed that if, you know, it, starting from the beginning of creation, you have particles coming together to make more complex particles, you know, protons making nuclei and then nuclei forming into atoms, and then molecules, and then, um, you know, eventually galaxies, and then planets, and all of these kinds of things. But it's always from union that those things happen. And the trick with, with the creative union is you don't give up your identity. You give up your individuality, maybe, or your, what would I say, your... Um, uh, your inability to to connect with the other in order to make a whole, in, in order to both, you know. And the interesting thing is when that happens, then a, a complexity, something more complex arises. So, you know, to put it in terms of, you know, our, of human beings, when we come together as a group, we're more complex, we're more able to do things than if we do it, you know, one by one. That is if everyone is putting themselves into the group. And so uh, this is a pattern that I, that is, I think, embedded into the whole, you know, process, the evolutionary process. And it's one we should learn from, you know, it's like this is the social aspect now, which, it, it, you know, after he wrote The Human Phenomenon, he began to write a lot more about the social applications of his synthesis. That was really important, not just that we, you know, know this nice science, but but we know that Christ is there driving the evolution, alluring us forward to what is good, and um, and that um, this complexity is, is, you know, is, is the the pattern that we should be trying to implement. And I think that one of the ways to do that is to work with groups, you know, to bring people together, to come to learn new ideas, to do things for others, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So I guess that leads to a question too about, you know, someone who died um, 70 years ago or so. Um, why is it important for us to to keep 
reading him today and wh why do you, why does he keep giving you energy and um, mm -hmm. at this point? Mm -hmm. Well, I think just as I said there about the social implications too. Um, uh, if we look at, you know, at evolution as a process that Christ is, you know, drawing us to participate in, then we better participate. <laughs> we have a role. And I think too many people say, oh, let God do it. You know, I'm not going to worry about anything, you know, when the things, but, but really, and I think the church is, is certainly getting more um, involved in, in social action, which is wonderful, but it, it gives um, a reason for it. You know, it's like everything else, you know, that I was saying, it needs to be, uh, for me, it needs to be reasonable and sensible. And so he's putting a, you know, that kind of a, a reason for us to be involved and a way with the creative union and complexity consciousness, you know, that we really need to continue to be more and more conscious so that we can contribute to the world as, you know, as it should be. And, um, and I guess today, um, you know, we see a lot of, a lot of problems in our world. The, the environment is a major one. And um, I think it's really important that we, you know, have have that motivation. We've talked about again about how he, so he's calling us to social questions. He's a paleontologist. He's a theologian, an essayist, and I, a poet. And as someone, as a words person, the quote of his that I always love and have shared with groups um, comes from a, an essay he wrote called "The Evolution of Chastity." Um, which he wrote, someday after mastering the winds, the waves, the tides, and gravity, we shall harness for God the energies of love. And then for a second time in the history of the world, man will have discovered fire. Which just to me, just such like a beautiful, powerful quote um, and has that sense of moving toward harnessing something that brings together the sense of uh, the fi you know, fire and these this basic instinct of humans discovery in, in a kind of scientific way, um, but also that brings in love and, and our role. And I'm just so curious if what you think of that quote again, but maybe his most famous uh, individual quote. And if you have any quotes yourself mm -hmm. of things of his that um, you, you like turning mm -hmm. to or, or introducing to groups. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree that that's the most popular. <laughs> And, and you're right. It's um, it is evolutionary. I mean, he's he's always talking evolution. It, this is what we're growing toward, right? And and the way. And I also think he thinks about love that way. Like love started with the particles in the Big Bang. It didn't start here. It becomes more complex. So what we experience as love today was already present. And and he would say the same thing about consciousness, that consciousness is is also present in the beginning in a, a, a much simpler form, but still it, it had to be somewhere in order to grow, to evolve. And so, yes, um, I, I find uh, this, this quote particularly beautiful. And like to um, uh, latest uh, kinds of retreats I'm doing, or on um, I'm, I'm talking about the growing, growing in radiance with Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. So lots of quotes about light and fire and love and um, and that, 
and uh, trying to put them into a context that isn't just, well, this is beautiful poetry, but something that really um, is challenging, you know, and uh, I think sure. it's possible. So we've talked a little bit about the kind of bringing together of, of faith and science. And that is a question that continues to be, to be a big one when we've talked about here on our show um, with different scientists who are also um, people of faith. And he was someone who did those things. It was a successful paleontologist and scientist and also a theologian and then brought them together maybe in, in new, new ways. And for, for you as someone uh, who is a physicist, you know, trained in physics uh, and also a, a religious sister, I'm just curious for you about um, how those things uh, fit together for you in your own a vocation and how Teilhard has kind of uh, helped you. You talked again a little bit about that, but I think that is a theme. People do wonder today, like how, you know, we we know so much more now about the the world and the universe than we did hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago. Like, how can we continue to be uh, people of faith without leaving so much of it behind? Um, mm -hmm. And I think there are so many examples of how we don't have to choose. Um, so yeah, could just tell us a little bit about your own journey of uh, kind of faith and, and science and, and how, again, mm -hmm. Teilhard uh, can help illuminate some of those paths for us. Yeah, I think, um, I think the first thing that's really important is, um, if, if anyone wants to try to put the two together is to believe in the inner data, you know, um, some evidence of whatever they're talking about. Well, if I tell you, I love another person, there's no way, especially, you know, scientists are really always into data. It has to be proved, right? I can try to explain that to you, but uh, it really, there's, there's a limit to the amount of data I can share. And so you might just decide that you don't believe me and that's fine. But, um, but if we begin to take inner data seriously and experience our inner world, which I think, you know, often I could find myself even when I was studying science being so absorbed with that, that, you know, maybe some other things went, you know, went on the side. Um, but the, the ability to keep the two uh, working together. Um, I don't know. I mean, I feel as if I had a, a bit of a faith crisis during my time in, um, uh, you know, studying science. Uh but it was just that I had never really had um, uh, someone help me to learn how to pray deeply, you know. And so a, 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 a guided retreat where I could share what I was worried about, what I didn't know, what I was, you know, uh, doubting, um, it just changed things for me. And so being able now to pray at a deeper level makes me much more uh, willing to say yes to, you know, to, ha to have faith, you know, and not just a faith that says, oh, well, that's what the church says. So I have to believe it. Or this is how, you know, these are the words I have to pray. But it's a, a deeper type of prayer. And so um, I think that was the advantage. And, and of course, there's a lot in Teilhard that would you know, just help us with that. I used to love to read that last part of the Divine Milieu. He has all kinds of uh, beautiful passages there. And he has a lot of good advice, too, for 
um, his friends who he used to write to, um, who were his spiritual directees uh, in France. And, um, you know, they're just wonderful passages that, you know, give you good ideas about how to, how to, um, you know, be with God. Well, it's interesting the way you describe the inner data and talking about love and how like you can't you can't prove you can't like go up to love or measure someone's love with uh, a scale or with like a Geiger counter like there's the but like I think I would say oh I believe that love exists and I think if you ask people do you believe in things like love or goodness or beauty are these things real like, yes. Can I measure them the way I can measure the realness of the apple I'm holding in terms of its like weight and, and color? And no, I can't exactly the same way. That doesn't make it less real. Just to me, suggests that there are multiple ways of realness, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so maybe just as we get toward the end here of our of our time, um, is there anything that we haven't gotten to for you that are you think will be important uh, for our our listeners to hear um you could recommend a place for for them to learn some more you could bring up another topic we just haven't had a chance to discuss um yeah what 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 else do you think we should add to the pot here well um i i could invite people to join the american tayard association and we have reading groups where we can you know people come and we can discuss the readings we're reading the divine milieu right now very slowly, really trying to get to the bottom of it. I think that's a good place to start. Another good place is Ursula King's Spirit of Fire. She does a marvelous job with Teilhard, his life and his work. Um, and um, I, what I think moves people most, this is a, a, an interesting comment that I've heard from many, many people. Well, in the 60s, I read The Divine Milieu. I didn't know what he was talking about, but I loved it. Hmm. In other words, the poetry somehow speaks. And so if we can add to the poetry some meaning, <laughs> I think that would be really good. And so there are some writers who are you know, trying to make Teilhard accessible, and we're trying to encourage that at the Teilhard Association. So that would be good. Um, and I think they're, you know, they're the major things. One of the, one other one though, I did write a book about struggle, Teilhard's struggle, and we talked about that. One day I was struggling myself with something, and as usual, I had um, a book of Teilhard's open, uh, to open, and I opened to his essay called "The Spiritual Power of Matter," and it was all about struggle. It's very, um, it's very. Um, imaginative. It's really very poetic and very interesting. And it just struck me so much that I had to write a book about Teilhard's struggle. And I found a lot of personal, his personal struggle, his personal growth, his personal way of relating to people, to things, to everything. It's, it's, it's extremely interesting how struggle was um, a component and it was, uh, this essay was written during one of his retreats where he, he agreed to um, engage struggle in whatever way it would come to him. And he certainly did. Uh, and so I find that a very interesting um, 
theme also that, you know, that uh, as you read his life and read his letters, I think you, you would find it more in his letters. Um, uh, there are lots of, of volumes of letters too, besides his essays. Sure. You can see. Mm -hmm. Well, just someone it feels like with really tremendous courage to kind of step out and to do something new and to risk um, being censored and to uh, travel to all kinds of places and to just follow what he felt like he was being called to do. And, and so just really uh, inspiring there uh, in terms of that, the way you describe kind of his um, you know, persistence through struggle and his own wrestling. Um, mm -hmm. So certainly someone to learn, learn from. And I'm excited to kind of continue the, the journey here uh, after our conversation to, to go deeper. So thank you so much, uh, Kathy, for spending this time and for all the, the great things you've, you've done and continue to do to, to help people uh, get to know, um, really get to know Christ through their engagement with uh, Teilhard's work. So thanks so much. Thank you. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at WeAreTheJesuits, and facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation with the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to AMDG on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. Thank you.